Father Saint Benedict in the prologue continued. Since then, brethren, we have asked of the Lord who is to inhabit his temple. We have heard his commands to those who are to dwell there, and if we fulfill those duties, we shall be heirs of the kingdom of heaven. Our hearts, therefore, and our bodies must be made ready to fight under the holy obedience of his commands. And let us ask God to supply by the help of his grace what by nature is not possible to us. And if we would arrive at eternal life, escaping the pains of hell, then, while there is yet time, while we are still in the flesh, and are able to fulfill all these things by the light which is given us, we must hasten to do now what will profit us for all eternity. But thou, O Lord, have mercy upon us. St. Benedict continuing to draw upon Psalm 14, Lord, who shall dwell in thy tabernacle? Describes his monk as an inhabitant of the temple of the Lord. Dwelling in the temple of the Lord, like the prophetess Anna, daughter of Phanuel, who, St. Luke tells us, departed not from the temple by fasting and prayers, serving night and day. The prophetess Anna is given us at the beginning of St. Luke's Gospel. And uh, at the end, uh, we have uh, a complementary description of what is prefigured in the prophetess Anna. St. Luke gives us an image of Benedictine life at the end of his Gospel. Et erant semper in templo, laudantes et benedicentes deum. And they were always in the temple, praising and blessing God. For us, the temple, which is, by divine design, revealed to Moses in Exodus chapters 25 through 27, finally realized by Solomon, for us the temple, <coughs> the enclosure, the temple was, was designed by God as an enclosure. It's very interesting when we read in Exodus the description of the temple. And so for us the temple is the monastery, as St. Benedict himself says in chapter 4, and the workshop Officina, where we are to labor at all these things, is the cloister of the monastery and stability in the community. There is then the operarius, the workman, chosen by the Lord, the opus dei, the work of God, to which the workman is associated, and the officina, the enclosure of the monastery in which the workman dwells in order to carry out his work by night and by day. St. 
St. Benedict returns to the daunting reality of spiritual combat. Our hearts, he says, therefore, and our bodies must be made ready to fight under the holy obedience of his commands. St. Benedict echoes the Apostle, who, writing to his dear Ephesians, says, Finally, brethren, be strengthened in the Lord and in the might of his power. Put you on the armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the deceits of the devil. For our wrestling is not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers, against the rulers of this world, darkness, against the spirits of wickedness in the high places. Therefore, take unto you the armor of God, that you may be able to resist in the evil day, and to stand in all things perfect. Monastic life is not a pious holiday. An endless round of chants, processions, incense, and splendid apparel. There are some men who conceive of monastic life as a kind of perpetual soccer and Turgia conference. <laughs> it's not that. It's not that. It is rather a ceaseless vigilance, nepsis, nepsis according to the word of St. Peter, that we hear every night at Compline. Be sober and watch, because your adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion, goeth about seeking whom he may devour. Monastic life is also an unseen warfare, an endless round of skirmishes, and sometimes of exhausting and bloody combat with the world, the flesh, and the devil. There are men who, as soon as they encounter difficulties, struggles, fatigue, and disappointments, want to run away from the monastery. Such men forget that St. Benedict will say at the end of the prologue, Do not, therefore, fly in dismay from the way of salvation, whose beginning cannot but be straight and difficult. Our father, St. Athanasius, shows us that uh, a man, that a man must enter the cloister as his hero, St. Antony, entered the desert to struggle against the attacks and deceits of the devil. The devil began to attack St. Antony as soon as he began his monastic life. We read in chapter 5 of St. Athanasius' Life of Antony. This is an extraordinary account. Listen carefully. But the devil, who hates and envies what is good, could not endure to see such a resolution in a youth, but endeavored to carry out against him what he had been wont to effect against others. First of all, he tried to lead him away from the discipline. The discipline here, the technical word, is the monastic struggle, the ascetical life. First of all, he tried to lead him away from the discipline, whispering to him the remembrance.
or sister, claims of kindred, love of money, love of glory, the various pleasures of the table, and the other relaxations of life, and at last, the difficulty of virtue and the labor of it. He suggested also the infirmity of the body and the length of the time. This is, this is an extraordinarily um, astute uh, psychological analysis of the temptations of every monk. And the last one, and the length of the time, well, I have to do this day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year, usque ad mortem, get me out of here. St. Athanasius had it all. Uh, he, he explains it very clearly. In a word, says Athanasius, he raised in his mind a great dust of debate, wishing to debar him from his settled purpose. But when the enemy saw himself to be too weak for Antony's determination, and that he rather was conquered by the other's firmness, overthrown by his great faith, and falling through his constant prayers. Then at length, putting his trust in the weapons which are in the navel of his belly, and boasting in them, for they are his first snare, for the young is talking about sexual temptations, his, uh, he attacked the young man, disturbing him by night, and harassing him by day, so that even the onlookers saw the struggle which was going on between them. The one would suggest foul thoughts, and the other counter them with prayers. The one, firing with lust. The other, as one who seemed to blush, fortify his body with faith, prayers, and fasting. And the devil, unhappy white, one night even took upon him the shape of a woman and imitated all her acts, simply to beguile Antony. But he, his mind filled with Christ, it's a beautiful expression, his mind filled with Christ, and the nobility inspired by him, this is the nobility of the warrior in the service of the Lord Christ, the true king, and considering the spirituality of the soul quenched the coal of the other's deceit. Again, the enemy suggested the ease of pleasure, but he, like a man filled with rage and grief, turned his thoughts to the threatened fire and the gnawing worm, and settling these in array against his adversary, passed through the temptation unscathed. All this was a source of shame to his foe, for he, deeming himself like God, Satan, was now mocked by a young man. And he who boasted himself against flesh and blood was being put to flight by a man in the flesh. For the Lord was working with Antony. That's marvelous. The Lord was working with Antony. The Lord, who for our sake took flesh, and gave the body victory over the devil. This is this is Saint Athanasius at his best. So that all who truly fight can say, not I, but the 
grace of God which was with me. Is that not a marvelous text? It's one you should keep close at hand because it's a veritable catalog of the uh, devil's panoply of uh, attacks and temptations. The last word of St. Athanasius links up directly with what St. Benedict says today. Let us ask God to supply by the help of his grace what by nature is not possible to us. That's a key sentence in the Holy Rule. This little sentence is, I think, one of the most important teachings of the Holy Rule. Already here, St. Benedict alludes to something that he will address more fully in chapter 68 concerning commands that are hard and impossible. Chapter 68 ends with this injunction. Confidence de auditorio dei obediat. Trusting in the assistance of God, which is a synonym for grace. Trusting in the assistance of God, let him obey. It's kind of a triumphant subjunct at the end of that sentence, obediat. In both the prologue, and chapter 68, St. Benedict speaks of having to face impossible things. Many monks, indeed all monks, are tempted at one time or another to declare the whole life impossible and run away. It is an old, old story. There are accounts of monks in the Middle Ages, I'm thinking in particular of a certain text of St. Aelred. I'll look for it and try to bring it to chapter another day. And saying things like, I cannot bear another day, nay, not another hour of this life. The choir grinds on my nerves. The very odor of my neighbor makes me ill. The food is insipid and indigestible. My habit is ill-fitting and uncomfortable. I cannot sleep by night, and I cannot stay awake by day. The sound of the bell is a torture to my ears. Brother X is dull-witted and sluggish. Brother Y is imperious and haughty. Brother Z is lazy and feckless. The abbot is rigorous, or lax, or lacking in sympathy, or too indulgent. How have I come to live among such a crowd of incompetents, imbeciles, and neurotics? I know what I shall do. I shall run away from this prison, this madhouse, this wasteland, and find a better place, and more intelligent and congenial people. I shall taste once again of freedom, pleasure, and all the gratifications that are denied me in this dull and wretched cloister. I shall cast off the habit, grow up my hair, and find my fortune far from here. It is an old, old story. And not many days after, the younger son 
gathering all together, went abroad into a far country, and there wasted his substance, living riotously. And after he had spent all, there came a mighty famine in that country, and he began to be in want. And he went and cleaved to one of the citizens of that country, and he sent him into his farm to feed swine. And he would fain have filled his belly with the husks the swine did eat, and no man gave unto It is an immense grace to have to admit that the monastic life is impossible. In fact, the abbot of Montéca in the north of France, whose name escapes me at the moment, wrote a wonderful little book on precisely this. It is an immense grace to have to admit that the monastic life is impossible. He, uh, his name will come to me, he argues in this book that when a monk has fulfilled all the prescriptions of the rule and gone forward for years uh, in the practice of the observance, he comes sooner or later to the humbling realization that it's impossible to go on. And Don Luf, Andre Luf, that's his name, says that is precisely the point when Grace takes over in some way, in a way that, of course, there was grace prior to this experience, but he talks about the <coughs> experience of salutary failure, of coming to a dead end, finding oneself up against a wall. And he sees this as a great decisive moment in the monastic combat. It is an immense grace to have to admit that the monastic life is impossible. It is also a severe but salutary thing to fall, to fail, and to find oneself prostrate in the dust, if by it one is brought to humble supplication. It is by humble supplication that one can obtain grace, and it is grace that makes things deemed impossible and again I say to you, it is easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of heaven. And when they had heard this, the disciples wondered very much, saying, Who then can be saved? And Jesus, beholding, said to them, With men this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. I, I, I love to apply this word of our Lord to the monastic struggle. It's one of those phrases that I would like to see in, in, in calligraphy uh, on the wall of the chapter house. I can imagine what John would do with a sentence like that, writing it on the wall. <laughs> with men, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. I will never tire of insisting on grace and on the necessity of prayer, itself an effective grace to obtain grace. 
It is by grace that a soul is prepared to receive grace. It is by grace that a soul rises from sin and begins to walk in newness of life. It is by grace that one avoids sin. It is by grace that one practices virtue. It is by grace that one perseveres in what is good. Is this not, well, not only the teaching of St. Thomas, but is this not what our Lord himself revealed to the Apostle? I'll give it to you in the translation of Monsignor Knox, which is particularly compelling. But he told me, Christ to Paul, my grace is enough for thee. My strength finds its full scope in thy weakness. More than ever then, I delight to boast of the weaknesses that humiliate me, so that the strength of Christ may enshrine itself in me. I am well content with these humiliations of mine, with the insults, the hardships, the persecutions, the times of difficulty I undergo for Christ. When I am weakest, then I am strongest of all. The Benedictine monk, like every other Christian, lives by grace. He is utterly reliant on grace. He knows that grace is obtained by prayer, and so the monk prays always. One can make a kind of syllogism. Monks are at all times in need of grace. Grace is obtained by prayer. Monks, therefore, pray at all times. This is why I have so often referred you to the 10th chapter of St. John Cassian's 10th Conference on Prayer without ceasing. And finally, the Apostle says, We have not a high priest who cannot have compassion on our infirmities, but one tempted in all things like as we are, without sin. Let us go, therefore, with confidence to the throne of grace, to the throne of grace, we may obtain mercy and find grace in seasonable aid. So there's all of that in that little portion.